Yeah, I look back on it, and, and I mean, we were so underprepared, and we, I, the first time I rode the motorcycle on the dirt was the start of the f- first special. So it was like from from zero to wide open, trying to read the road book and figure the bike out. And I had no idea how the bike was going to react when I hit the first the first ditch, but it was somehow <laughs> I I got through it. And you know, it was, it's a big learning curve, especially for for an American who's never I had never raced a rally before. Yeah. Um, I had never raced with a road book. You know, I did maybe two or three days of practice. Uh, you know, just before I left, you know, they, I'd never seen the GPS or any of the rules and regulations. And so I, you know, and I ended up finishing ninth the first year. Coming to you from the heart of America, this is the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. On each episode, we'll talk with industry insiders, experienced adventure riders, ADV creators, and moto fabricators. With a passion for adventure and a penchant for two-wheel travel, we explore the stories of those behind the adventure motorcycle world. On the show today, we kick off the 2023 season by catching up with Quinn Cody, a four-time Baja 1000 champion, a Dakar rally racer and top 10 finisher, and a KTM R&D guru who helped shape KTM motorcycles for the American market. A Californian through and through, Quinn grew up exploring the mountains near his home and trying to keep up with his older sister Anna, a badass racer in her own right. We talk with Quinn about racing and wrecking, how he was on the ground floor for the development and launch of the KTM 790 Adventure, and how he competed at the Red Bull Romaniacs, the world's toughest enduro race, on a KTM 1090 Adventure R. Stick around. I think you'll enjoy this episode. Hey, if you're planning your next big adventure on a KTM 790, 890, 1290, or the Norden 901, give the guys at Bulletproof Designs a call and get your bike protected. Bulletproof is an industry-leading manufacturer of billet aluminum off-road protection guards and accessories, and their hard parts are purpose-built to protect your motorcycle. Lightweight, simple to install, and made in the U.S., all of Bulletproof guards come with a lifetime warranty. Again, Give them a call or check them out at bulletproofdesigns.com. On the show today, uh, we have four-time Baja 1000 champion and two-time Dakar competitor and top 10 finisher, Quinn Cody. Quinn, welcome to the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. Hey guys, awesome, nice to be here. Do you pronounce it Dakar or Dakar? I usually say Dakar. Dakar? Yeah. It sounds more European, but, right? Yeah, I don't know. It's yeah. just, that's just what I've always said. I had one guy, we were having a couple of beers, and he started saying Dakar. And I said, I think that was a cologne I wore like in high school. <laughs> um, but we'll go with Dakar. Dakar. Um, and you, you did that. Uh, was that its first year in South America? Uh, no, it, it had been in South America. I, I did it the first year where uh, 450s. Okay. So when they outlawed the the 690, and uh, it was there was kind of a phase in. They they allowed 690s with restrictors, and you know, but pretty much everybody had to adopt to the 450, and gotcha. that was uh, 2011. Chile to Argentina. 
Yeah, started in Buenos Aires and finished in Buenos Aires. Okay. So I went through went through Chile, and uh, we didn't go quite into Peru, but we went all very close up to the border, and then back down in finished back in Buenos Aires. Okay, I want to cover that later in the podcast, um, but uh, super interesting part of your backstory. Uh, before we jump in, maybe to to where you grew up, how you grew up, how you got into motorcycles and all the things I like to hear on this podcast. Um, first, let me start with how, how are you doing physically? I know uh, it's been four months since you kind of had a pretty bad wreck down in Mexico and took a helicopter ride out, right? Yeah. Yeah. I had a, I had a big crash in April at uh, San Felipe 250. Um, I got talked into racing a over 40 team uh, in Baja. So, you know, I, I talked my wife into going, letting me go down and, you know, just a, just an age class just for fun. And, and, uh, I ended up hitting something in the dust that just uh, blinding. I never saw it and, uh, completely took me out and I got, I got drilled by the bike and, um, you know, had a pretty, pretty serious, serious incident. Um, feeling better now though. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all good. Uh, the, you know, the injuries I, uh, I broke uh, four vertebrae, uh, 12 ribs, collapsed my lung, um, compound fractured my left arm. So it was a, it was a pretty big, uh, big get off and a little bit scary there for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I had seen some of your Instagram posts with hardware and things like that, but I didn't realize uh, you broke that much stuff and had internal injuries. Good Lord. Yeah, I, I I kept a pretty low profile on that one, but uh, it was <laughs> well, not anymore, man. It's yeah, not, it was uh, a few days in the hospital and you know, uh, chest tube and the whole deal. So. Oh gosh, and at at you forty, think, I mean, are you, you know, was it, are you like, hey, that's my last time I'm going to go down and and race the Baja series? Yeah, I mean, I I don't need to be putting myself at risk. You know, I have two young kids and, and, uh, the better question you know, is, is your wife going to, no, no, my wife she... would murder me. That's there's no, <laughs> yeah, there's no possibility. It, it, it's not yeah. going to happen. So <laughs> I have to, I have to tiptoe around the racing topic. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. Um, okay. So I know that you, um, you, you have a pretty interesting, uh, backstory, you know, kind of growing up, you didn't grow up in town. I don't believe, I think you grew up out in the Santa Ynez Valley and, uh, you know, kind of in a ranch, uh, you know, off, off alone and, and motorcycles maybe were as much a, a, a way of transportation as they were a form of recreation. Yeah. So my dad, my dad was an artist. He was a, a stone sculptor and he, you know, back in the early seventies, he bought a, a property in the middle of the San Rafael wilderness, which is, you know, way back in the back country behind Santa Barbara. And, um, we had a, a 13 mile dirt road to get to our, to our ranch. And it was about two hours from the nearest town and, uh, you know, no, no phone, no electricity, you know, we had, we had our own well and, uh, you know, everything was, was completely off grid, but we always had motorcycles because it was, it was like our, our transportation, we could get in and out really quickly. And like, uh, you know, in the winter time, a lot of times our road would wash out. And so we would ride motorcycles to town to get supplies and, and things like that. And, uh, so, you know, all, all of my siblings became really good motorcycle riders at a, at a pretty young age. 
Yeah, yeah. We we interviewed. Uh, I've mentioned it a couple times on this podcast. Nathan Jenkins, uh, who grew up in a hippie commune down in Arkansas, uh, and not saying that you guys were were on a hippie commune down there, but same type of yeah. thing. I mean, he would like take off on his motorcycle to go to school, and he's like to get the mail. It was like three creek crossings or something, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so he was like, you know, it wasn't fun. It wasn't not fun. It was just like what you did. You hopped on, and and that was how you you got around. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I made it my fun because there wasn't a whole lot. There wasn't, there was no other real kids to hang out with. So I would just go and spin laps on my, on my dirt bike, you know, all day long. And I'd, I'd burn every ounce of fuel on the ranch and I'd be siphoning, you know, fuel out of my dad's truck and, and just riding constantly during the summer. And, you know, cause that, there wasn't much else to do back there. Right. And you would you would take off and explore, right? I mean, I, I think I read somewhere in an article where you were like, you know, riding at a pretty young age by yourself, you know, kind of in the mountains, and you learn kind of where your where your lines are, you know, and, and what to cross and what not to cross. Yeah, I mean, we had, you know, I, I want to say, you know, at ten years old, I would ride, I would ride all the way to to town and like, uh, you know go and visit my friends or something and, and by myself. And so you would ride, you know, I mean, it's, it was a good, you know, hour, hour long ride through the back country, single track and fire roads. And then we'd jump on the pavement and just ride the pavement into town. And like, it was a small town, so no one really cared. Um, yeah. but yeah, I would just go by myself and, you know, you, I mean, carry a, a fanny pack with some tools or whatever, but it just, I don't know, somehow it, we got what by. Were you, what, what were you riding back then when you were eight, nine, 10 years old? Gosh, I mean, when I started, I was on a, I was on an XR80. I had like a, a 1983 XR80, and and I mean, I rode that thing until it, uh, it wouldn't go anymore, basically. And then uh, I finally got a two-stroke when I was about 12 years old, I think. So I got a like a CR80, and I was you know stoked to finally have a two-stroke, something that I could <laughs> actually actually rip on. But I wasn't one of the kids, like one of the racer kids that grew up, uh, you know, dad's taking him to the moto track on a, you know, on a PW50 and, and racing and, and stuff like that. You know, I had like, class, right. Yeah. Yeah. I had trail bikes and I didn't race, actually race a motorcycle until I was 12. Okay. And you, you had a, a number of siblings, right? I know your, your sister Anna is a pretty accomplished, uh, yep. motorcycle racer and, I think for, for everybody that doesn't know, the first female ever to finish the Baja 1000, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Anna's, she's an awesome rider and just a tough, gnarly competitor. Uh, she, you know, she raced, I want to say she won more than a dozen, you know, District 37 women's titles and uh, National Heron Hound titles. And then, uh, you know, she, she raced Baja um, back in the 90s on, on Team Green. And then, uh, soloed the the 1000 all the way to La Paz in uh in 2006. I think she did that in like 33 hours. That was Wow. Rena on an XR650. Yeah. Which That's not, awesome. not a small and, motorcycle. And, awesome. she, and she's your older sister too, right? So you were yeah. you were chasing her around the the track as a kid. Yeah, I mean that pretty much she's it's her fault that I that I started racing because she, you know, she went out and started racing. She's probably, she's almost nine years older than me. So I was always chasing her around and, and, uh, you know, she would take me to the desert when I was a kid and, and, you know, that was all I wanted to do is race motorcycles. 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a California guy, but um, we we ride with a guy who grew up r- running, you know, the District 37 stuff. And uh, geographically, from where you grew up, I mean, that's a pretty good haul, right down to Southern California. Yeah, it's a long way. I mean, it's four to five hours to like Lucerne Valley or something. And just where we lived, I mean, I would have loved to race enduros because where I grew up is in the trees and the mountains and. And, but there's just no racing there, you know, there's yeah. no OHV areas or anything like that. So, um, the, if you, you know, living in California, if you want to race, you go to the desert and that's pretty much your only option, unless you're up North and you can race like district 36 and Hollister in that area. Gotcha. So you started really racing in earnest 12, 13, that yeah. time frame, early teens. Yep. So I, I raced through, you know, through my teenage years and, and I spent a lot of time kind of going to the desert and, and racing Grand Prix and a little bit of motocross and stuff, um, you know, up until about 16 or 17. And, and I was just going through motorcycles at a, at a rate that my parents couldn't, could no longer afford, (laughs) which was, was, it was pretty ridiculous, you know, at the time. And, uh. So I, I pretty much stopped for, um, you know, my later teen years because, you know, through high school and stuff, uh, just because I didn't have the resources to go, to go race. But I mean, you were racing at a pretty high level. I, I, I think I recall at 15, you won the, the best of the West kind of in the novice division, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I struggled my way through it. You know, I, I didn't know a whole lot back then and I just kind of would, would key off what, who people were around me. And, you know, and so like I could always go fast at, at a young age and, you know, I got moved up into the, into the expert class pretty young. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I was a big kid, obviously, like when I was 14, I mean, I was on a, I was already on a two fifty two stroke and, you know, uh, are, are the kids, Quentin, are the kids you got you, that you were racing back then, I mean, were they coming out of LA and, and, and did they have coaches and, and were there, I mean, was it, was it that kind of thing back then or, or was it they're mostly, every- they're mostly men, like, you know, 25, <laughs> 30 year old men. Yeah. They were just grown men. And I was like a kid racing, uh, on a big bike, you know, cause I, I outgrew in 80, I think in in seventh grade i didn't spend very much time on a mini bike and i just went straight to a 125 and and then do a 250 um because i was you know when i was in eighth grade i mean i think i was i was six one and you know nearly 200 pounds so it was oh, uh yeah. you know yeah. i was i was racing against grown-ups i never really had like much mini cycle career where i was racing against other kids i would I'd go to, you know, in the early days on my 80, I would go to motocross track and, you know, we'd go do some races, but I didn't spend very long on a, on a small bike. Gotcha. And so you, you get through your, your high school career and what brought you back to, to riding and, and racing? What was the opportunity there that, that kind of opened that door back up? So, you know, I always kind of, kind of dabbled a little bit and I would, I would ride here and there and, and, you know, race with some, some buddies or whatever. And, um, I had a few bikes and then I, um, I, as I got a little bit older, I, I actually had my own business and I was, I had a landscape company where I was doing, uh, like landscape construction and stuff like that. And, um, I just, you know, I had money and, you know, so I bought a dirt bike and I started riding and then, you know, pretty soon it's like, well, yeah, what's next? You know, you're going to, you're going to go race. And 
so I started racing a little bit and, um, you know, I just kind of, I, I always had that dream of like being a successful racer. And, and so I had kind of this hole in the middle of my, you know, my younger years. And so I just said, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a shot. You know, I'm going to put, you know, I, I was able to afford to go to the races and, and, uh, I, you know, put some effort in and, and got into shape and, you know, started riding a lot. And then, you know, things kind of started falling into place. Um, it was, you know, a little bit of a slow process, but, um, you know, I, so I started going to more and more races and, you know, you dedicated yourself and, and I guess over time people noticed, right? So race teams start to notice sponsors start to notice. And, and, uh, at some point you get picked up by Honda, right? Yeah. That, you know, it was, it was more like a thing, like they needed a guy for a race, you know, and then, and then they would call me up and I would come in and kind of fill in for a race. And then, you know, one race turned into another race and then, you know, it, it, it kind of snowballed over, over a few years. Yeah. And, and they're, they're basically supplying you bike and, and parts, right? I mean, you're not living the Jeremy McGrath lifestyle at that point, right? No, 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 not at all. I mean, when we started out, you know, in the beginning, like I would get some, I would get some parts from, from Honda and Johnny would give me some free stuff. And then, and then we started getting bikes. Like I remember the first time, you know, Johnny and, and Bruce Ogilvy invited me down to, to Honda to, you know, pick up a couple new bikes. And it was like, we picked up, uh, at the time we were racing XR six fifties and, you know, I picked up a couple of new six fifties and a whole bunch of parts. And I was like, just blown away, like cruising through the race shop and in Torrance at Honda and, uh, Kid on Christmas. But, yeah, but that was, that was what we got. You know, we worked on our own bikes and, um, you know, we had to, we were basically our own mechanics for, for all the local races that we wanted to do like, uh, district 37 or Heron Hound. And then the Baja races, you know, they were, they were like the factory prep bikes and, and stuff like that. And, uh, when I started, there was no money, um, you know, not even like, not even bonus money for, for me. Cause I wasn't contracted. I was just like a fill-in guy. Gotcha. And, um, so you're you, still running the landscape business at this time and racing on yep. the weekends. Yep. Exactly. So fast forward to, to your first Baja win. Um, mm -hmm. how, how did that I mean, so you're, you're kind of on the circuit at this point, right? I mean, you're, you're, yep. you're racing regularly. Um, you got a team and, and you go do the whole Baja series, right? Which is, um, I can't remember San Felipe 250, yep. the Baja 500, the Baja 1000, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so that year, 2006 was the first year I won the thousand and, um, I was, I was racing in kind of a, a support role, um, you know, they had the, they had the factory, basically they had four factory riders at the time. And, um, I was there just to kind of fill in and they would give me parts and bikes and stuff like that, just to be, just to be available basically for, you know, if they needed me for the thousand or, or whatever. And then I helped, I helped with, a a lot of testing, uh, at the time we we're developing the 450X, which was, was brand new. Um, and that was the first year that we raced the 450 in Mexico. And so I did a lot of like durability testing and stuff like that. Um, you know, Bruce Ogilvy at the time was running that whole, that whole program. And he was, he was actually in R and D 
uh, at Honda or product development, R&D. And, and so they would do durability testing and I would come help out with that stuff. And then the first year uh, or that year in 2006, they split, they split the two teams apart and they put, uh, so they split Johnny and Steve. So Hengeveld and Campbell had been racing together for, for years at that point. And they split those two guys and they put Steve on one team with myself and Mikey Childress. And then they put Johnny on uh, the other team with uh, Robbie Bell and Kendall Norman. And so we had two three rider teams for the, for the thousand that year. And, um, you know, I, we ended up, our team ended up winning, you know, the other guys had some problems and it was like kind of a snowball effect, but we, you know, we ended up winning that year and it was, you know, it was pretty surreal experience. I, I was, I was 31 the first, the first year that I won or 30 actually the the first year I won the thousand. So, um, yeah, that class and, uh, and, you know, still, still not getting paid. Uh, Bruce, Bruce wrote me a personal check for, for a thousand dollars and like, you know, sent me a, sent me an envelope, you know, and, and just like basically gave me a bonus, you know, out of his pocket, you know, for for the race win. And so that was like my first, yeah. Wow. Pretty much my first time getting paid to race. And so you, you were on a taxes ha- on that, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so you were on a Honda that year and then, and then you won three more times, right? Yeah. Uh, and were you on Hondas or KTMs? So all my wins came on Hondas. Oh, um, okay. Yep. So the, the following year in 2007, I, I went to KTM. KTM hired me like a, a real, you know, paid deal. So that was like my first factory ride. Cause I was still kind of filling in with Honda and I wasn't getting paid. Um, so KTM offered me a deal to go and race, um, on the 690 in Baja. They had that 690 factory, 690 Baja team. And, uh, and so Quinn, for my- a lot, a lot of our listeners are, are, you know, weekend riders, Terry and I are, you know, weekend yep. riders, right? Explain to us the, the difference. Like if you're a factory rider versus, you know, kind of a contract rider, um, or, or a guy that's filling in, yeah. you know, on, on a team, what, what do you get being a factory rider or, or what, what comes with that? I mean, in general, so usually there's like, like the different levels would be like a support rider and a, and a factory rider. And so the support rider will get like a parts allowance. So maybe they get, you know, a couple thousand dollars a year in, in parts, and then they'll get to buy the bikes at a discount. So they'll get, a you know, a deal on bikes and maybe they don't have to pay for them until the end of the year or they have a, an arrangement with their local dealer. So they, it, you know, it makes it a little bit easier for them to race. And then maybe they get some, some information from the factory team, like, you know, how to set up the bike and things like that. Um, but not, not a ton of help. Um, the time when I was at Honda, it was a little bit different where they, they would just give us bikes to use for the year and we would give them back, you know, when we were done. But, um, you know, in general, it, it works something like that. And then when you're on the factory team, you know, you have a contract and you're, you know, you're paid a monthly salary and everything's included, um, you know, parts, all your expenses for travel, for, you know, going to the races, you know, you just basically turn in your, your expense report. Um, you have, you know, certain obligations where you have to go to photo shoots and, you know, different press, press events and, yeah things like that. So as a factory rider, there's, there's more obligations and, and things like that. But then, you know, also of course you're, everything's taken care of for you. Nice. So, so you win, uh, your first 1000 
at 30 or 31. And yep. then you go on to win three more. How old were you on, on the subsequent? So, you know, the bulk of my career was actually between 30 and like 37. So um, I won, let's see, in 2006 and then 2009, 2010 and 2011. Okay. So we had a, a three-year run where Kendall Norman and I won pretty much all the score races and and everything there from, from 2009 to 2011. Do you think you're a better rider at that age because of the maturity level and you're just not trying to go fast, you're trying to ride smart? Or did you just come into this late and have a really good kind of back-end career? I mean, it, it's, I think it's a combination of everything. You know, my, my fitness was really good. Um, you know, I, in racing, in especially races like Mexico, you, it, it takes quite a bit of experience to race down there and you have to, there's, there's a lot you have to know and, you know, how to prepare and there's a lot of pre-running that goes into it and, and just a lot of moving parts. So, you know, I think maybe being a little bit older for, for that kind of racing is, is better. Um, and then, you know, I, I think maybe I wasn't as burned out as some guys because I missed that kind of chunk of time when I was, when I was younger. So I was yeah. a little Still more fresh. motivated. Yeah. Okay. So you finish, uh, the, the Bajas and then you go to Dakar, right? <laughs> yeah. I had to think about that. You yeah. really did. You I did. No, I paused. I was like, <laughs> how do I want to say this? Um, how did that come about? And where did that opportunity stem from? Yeah. So Dakar was like, a, it was a dream of mine for, for a long time. And, and, you know, the reality of it is it's like, it was really difficult for Americans, especially at that time to, to figure out how to go do it. Um, you know, there's virtually no money for, for Americans to, as far as sponsorship money to go race a race like that, in, especially in those days. And I mean, you know, it's, you're talking, you know, a hundred thousand dollars minimum for mm -hmm. one race. And so when you talk to, to sponsors here in the U S they're, they're like, what, what, what race, one race, <laughs> you know? And, uh, so it was, it was a dream and Johnny, Johnny Campbell and I both had the same kind of idea that we wanted to move towards, towards racing Dakar and, and getting some Americans over there. And so he was a big part of, of pushing, you know, for that. But I mean, I, I really started like trying to do it in probably 2007 and, um, you know, just making connections with people in Europe and, and talking to people. And I ended up connecting with, uh, with a guy named, uh, Hank Helgers from the Netherlands. And he ran a, a race team that was, uh, like they called it team Honda Europe and they built a, a rally kit for the 450X and it okay. was, basically just a bolt on kit that you could bolt onto a 450X and, and race. And so I, I talked with him and I actually, uh, I went over there and raced a couple races in Europe on the bike and, and kind of checked it out. And, um, you know, he came for, for some visits and, uh, we tried really hard in 2010 and it just financially, we couldn't, we couldn't put it together. And so, you know, we had to, we had to pull the plug on it. And then 2011, I was, I wasn't super motivated because I was kind of discouraged from, from 20, from 2010, you know, being just not being able to pull it off. And, um, 
I got a call from from Hank in like October. And you know, normally for Dakar, like you have to have all your funding in place and everything like ready to go by by June. And you know, the last of it would be, you know, maybe September, and then you're, you know, you better be ready. Right. Um, and so I was pretty pretty much sure I wasn't gonna go. And I got a call from Hank and he's like, Hey, can you buy a plane ticket? And you know, and I'm like, What? It's like, can you get can you get to uh Argentina? No way. <laughs> and I'm like, uh yeah. He's like, okay, well, we'll have a bike there for you. And wow. uh so yeah, he he put everything together. He found uh he found sponsors um primarily in the Netherlands and we got a little bit of help from uh from Honda in in Europe and then you know once the ball got rolling we were able to get some help from American Honda and we actually got some spare parts and we were able to ship some spare parts over to uh to the Netherlands and get you know get him like a little bit a little bit of help I guess a little more help yeah um yeah but yeah it was it was pretty surreal and you know it was it was an amazing opportunity that that first year that that's fantastic. I mean, for those that don't know the Dakar Rally, you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. Um, but sixty five hundred miles through, like what seven eight countries? Yeah, I mean, the the original Dakar in Africa was you know it started in Paris and it finished in in Dakar, Senegal. Right. And it was, you know, it went through all through um, Western Africa and, you know, the Sahara Desert. And then uh, they moved it to South America in 2008, I believe. Yeah. Or 2009. A little bit um, safer. Just because of in- instability. Uh, yeah. And, you know, but they kept the name Dakar. Yeah. Um, it's the, so the ASO is the organizer who's the, the, the same, the same people that organize the Tour de France and uh, a lot of like big sailboat races and things like that. And so they're a, they're a massive promotion company and you know, the, the, the scale of the race is pretty incredible. Yeah. Super fun to watch. Um, I know you had, I don't want to talk about all your wrecks, but I think you, you had a pretty bad one uh, maybe in your first run, right? Uh, no, it's actually my, my second, my second time there. Your second time. So, okay. Yeah. First, the first, uh, first one went, went super smooth. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say super smooth, but I, I fumbled my way through it and, you know, it was, it's a big learning curve, especially for, for an American who's never, I had never raced a rally before. Yeah. Um, I had never raced with a road book. You know, I did maybe two or three days of practice, uh, you know, just before I left and, um, and you know, they, I'd never seen the GPS or any of the rules and regulations. And so I, you know, and I ended up finishing ninth the first year, which was, was pretty miraculous considering it's, I was like on a stock motorcycle. And, I, I, I knew you, know. you had a top 10 finish, but I thought it was your second year. You, so you're the first yeah. year you ever race this thing and you're looking at roll charts like two days ahead of time and, and you finished top 10. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that's like literally, that's, I mean, such an accomplishment that you know, I don't know. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah, I look back on it, and, and I mean, we were so underprepared, and we, I, the first time I rode the motorcycle on the dirt was the start of the f- first special, so it was like from from zero to wide open, trying to read the road book and figure the bike out, and I had no idea how the bike was going to react when I hit the first 
the first ditch, but it was somehow <laughs> I, I got through it. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, okay. So you, you, once you finish that, um, do you then go to work? Because we, well, let me, let me tell you when I, I mean, I, I knew your name probably from the, the Dakar races, Mm-hmm. But where you really came into full frame for me is a little bit later. It's like in 2017 uh, with the Red Bull Romaniacs because Terry at that point had an 1190. Um, I was just coming off of a, a BMW GS1200, and, and I think I got my 1090 in, in 2018. So I think when I was looking at my 1090, I was going back and looking at all this stuff, and I was like, dude, there's this guy that did a hard enduro on a 1090. And uh, that bike can do anything. I've watched it, right? And so I, I know that there's a, it's a pretty fun story. There's So you and Chris Birch, uh, I think it was his idea, right, to go take adventure bikes and go do the Red Bull Romaniacs, which is an insane hard enduro race. And if anybody out there is listening and hasn't seen it, go go online and look at the, the video there. And then And then Chris, like, breaks a hand or something, right? Can't do it. And yep. he's like, okay, so he leaves it to you to take this 1090 <laughs> on this. I mean, what was that experience like? Yeah, so the, I mean, the the Romaniacs thing was was a kind of a crazy idea that uh, Chris and I were at a, a launch for the 1290 adventure in Peru, and um, so my my day job now is is I work in R and D for KTM uh, testing, you know, primarily adventure bikes, dual sport bikes, things like that. Um, so at the time we were there in Peru and like, we had a couple beers and we were, we were talking to my boss from Austria and, and we were like, we're like, Hey, wouldn't it be fun? Wouldn't it be funny if we raced 1090s at, uh, at Dakar or at, sorry, Dakar at, at Romaniacs, you know, we had the kind of this crazy idea with him and he's laughing and drinking beer. We're joking around about it. And then. You know, the next morning I get this email, like, and, I, and everybody in R&D is copied and it's like, okay, support these guys, whatever they need. Um, <laughs> you know, they're racing, they're racing Romaniacs. And then it was like all the media guys were copied on it and this and that. And so it just went from, from like having a couple of beers in the evening after the press launch to like, this is okay, happening. next day is happening and we've got full support to do it. Wow. And, uh, and you did pretty well there. I mean, like a like top third, right? Which is crazy. Yeah, I I mean, gosh, I don't even know what the the overall results were in the end. But I mean, it was just it was just trying to finish on the on right. The I was thing. gonna say just getting through amazing. it, right? It, yeah, it was rough. And and Romaniacs is it's a different sort of race, you know. I and I had never been and and didn't really understand how it works, and so it was it was a learning curve, and just kind of fumbling your way through. And, and the thing with Romaniacs is it'll, it, it's some of the most beautiful riding you've ever done in your life. And so you'll be riding along and you're just like, this is the best thing I've ever done on a motorcycle. But you have like this anxiety in the back of your mind that, you know, you're going to come around the corner and there's just going to be this God awful rutted out hill climb or this downhill that just takes you straight down, you know, for two miles down a snotty, hill through the trees and and, and there's so just it's carnage like, everywhere right i mean there's bikes everywhere oh, yeah. and you're and, having to get around 
and yeah, but the, but the tricky thing is like the, it's it's like schizophrenic. It's like it's fun, it's great, and then it's just terrible. It all the it, it, in the very next moment. I just can't imagine. You know, I mean, I rode. I rode that 1090 around and I picked it up more than I care to, to talk about. And I just can't imagine being on a, I don't know, 40 degree pitched hill full of mud and have that thing go over and then have to like, you know, pick that thing up and go around riders. And I mean, yeah. So, so we actually, I had a, I had a chase rider with me who was, who was help helping. And, and for sure, if it wasn't for him, I would have, I would have never finished. I mean, we it have only, like, it only makes me feel slightly better that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And funny. It, it was, you know, we have a special relationship after that, after that event. Yeah. That's was, a bond, right? It was, uh, it was, you know, probably just as difficult for him as it was for me. I'm sure. I'm sure. Okay, well, let, let's transition a little bit into uh, your role at KTM in R and D. You mentioned it a minute ago, and uh, when did, when did you get to work for for KTM? So I started I started at KTM in R and D in 2016. Okay, so that's like right at the start of the development of the 790, right? Yes. Yep. Okay, the bike that changed everything. Yeah. Um, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated about that because, um, and I want to. I want to learn what you did, but just in, in my mind, you know, that 790 came out and 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 you know then succeeded by the 890, and just so quickly changed that whole mid-size or mid-weight adventure market, right? And and there was nothing really in there, and everybody was going bigger and bigger. Uh, we certainly were. And then all of a sudden this bike comes out and it's got the range and the fuel sits down low and it rides light and it's the suspension is epic and it's like totally brand new. I mean, there's no, it's like not, it's not moved over from another platform. So, um, when did that bike come out? That 790, 19 or 20? Um, I 18? think it was 19, I, 19 for I a have... year and then 20. So the 890 has been out two years. Is that right? Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Sounds so you're about you, right. <laughs> you're work you're working on this thing for a couple of years before it it comes out. Yep. Yep. So yeah, I mean I, that was basically the first thing that I that I started with. Um, you know, I had a couple of projects on the ten ninety and the twelve ninety, but those were those were pretty far along in, in development and and like you said, they were already based on a on a uh, existing platform. So they were they were more refinement than than uh, you know full project from the ground up, uh, but I yeah I came in you know very early on, on in the 790 and it was it was super raw it was very uh, I mean just a frame and an engine basically and we had you know fuel tanks that were just attached to the bike just to hold fuel so that we could ride them there just metal you know cans basically and mm -hmm. you know just so we could ride the bike and feel how it handled and, and we had you know 3d printed parts everywhere and and you know believe it or not like in i mean 2016 like 3d printing was was amazing but the parts were much more brittle than they are now and and so half the bike was held together with duct tape and you know, zip ties and things like that, because, you know, you, you, and if you ride them off road, you're going to break the 3d printed parts off 
pretty quick at, pretty quick, at that yeah. time. Yeah. And, and nowadays, I mean, we have 3d printed parts that you can't tell the difference between production and, and 3d printing really. Yeah. Uh, and everything's, everything's so, uh, you know, the materials are so good and the processes are so good, but in those days it was, it was a little more raw. So we were definitely working, you know, with a, with a raw prototype and, you know, uh, we went through a lot, <laughs> a lot in the development of that bike for sure. Give us a little peek into like the process. So like, what, what's your role on the team? Like wh- where are the chief designer or engineers? Are they based overseas? And, yep. and what, 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 I mean, what's your role? What's your input process to, to that? So bike? we, we have, uh, basically in, in California, we have, uh, an R and D team here we have about eight people. Um, it's grown in the last couple of years, but, um, it, and we're, we're basically a test group. So, so we perform testing for the factory in, in Austria and we do, um, you know, endurance testing, we do suspension, we do all kinds of different electronic stuff, data recording, uh, traction control, ABS, um, you know, on the motocross side, we do suspension settings, uh, EFI mapping, things like that. And, um, but the, the actual design and the process, everything happens at R and D in, in Austria. And we, you know, we work really, really close with the chief engineers of the different bikes, uh, you know, from the from the beginning and really from from product management stage uh, we have a, a lot of influence to to the what the requirements of the bike is so it, it'll start with like a, a project card or something like that that's just a very basic outline of what the bike is supposed to do what boxes it's supposed to check um, all the different requirements the target customer things like that and then it goes you know it it's kind of a little further document and then it goes to Kiska, which is our design firm, uh, becomes basically a concept drawing and a, you know, basic design. And then, you know, then it's given to R and D and our product management has all these requirements for the bike. And then R and D has to, you know, fulfill that requirement within, you know, their specified price. And so then they start designing stuff and, you know, they have a purchasing department that, gets that's out you know pricing all the different components from suppliers and they're seeing what they can do to to meet the price point and things like that so there's there's just a ton of uh ton of stuff that goes into it and quinn are you um are you giving inputs for through the kind of eyes of a, of an american rider like are you going back to austria and being like i don't know man these guys are over here are a little bit bigger um you know maybe we yeah. got to go to a stiffer shock uh, yeah, I, I know the bikes don't vary that much, but I mean, are, are you giving inputs to the U.S. market? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the whole reason that we exist over here is because our market is different than theirs. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, adventure bikes in in Europe and especially like, uh, you know, Central Europe and, you know, like, say, Austria, Germany, France, they don't they don't really go off road. They're generally street bikes. And so they don't have any, any use for them, for them to be, you know, used off-road. And a lot of the adventures like the 1290, 1290R and things like that come with street tires yeah. in Europe. And so we, we spec them with, with off-road tires. 
And so there's a, there's a lot of stuff through the, through the testing process that we have influence to say, Hey, this is better for our market. And, you know, can we compromise here? Can we do this? And then in, in worst case, we have to actually specify spec the bike differently than they do in Europe. If it's something that we can't compromise on, mm-hmm. you know, we spend a lot of time. We go every year, we go to, uh, to death Valley and we spend, you know, a few days testing in death Valley with all of our engineers from Austria. And, you know, and we were just there last month. Um, you know, it was 125 degrees and we we're testing down there. And then we head up, uh, in the same day, we can head up to the top of the white mountains, um, just on the border of California, Nevada. And we're at, we're at over 12,000 feet. So, um, you know, we really spend a lot of time perfecting the the engine mapping and the fueling and stuff like that so that so the bikes really run good in, in all conditions and when you're out testing these things are they all like taped up like you see in the spy photos and everything uh you know generally we we keep them a little less like maybe they'll be black or something okay but usually lower profile yeah, we've discovered yeah. that like if you try to put camo on them or like some weird, you know, digital camo looking stuff, then people like people actually look at them. Yeah. If they're just black, someone's like, oh, it's just like a spike somebody built in their garage or Modded something. Out. You know, yeah. they don't really people <laughs> don't really notice them. Um, what do you think makes the KTM adventure bike so damn fun to ride? I mean, it, it is. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I've you know I've ridden a. a a handful of bikes, but you get on that 890 and you twist the throttle and you can't stop smiling. Yep. And I don't experience that on every bike. Yeah. I, I mean, it's KTM in general, just like the, the whole company culture and the dynamic. I mean, everyone rides at KTM. I mean, you go to, you go to R and D and all the project leaders are riding the bike. You go on a test every Every, uh, you know, electronics engineer, every fuel mapping guy, you know, every mechanic, they all ride the motorcycles. And so it, it just comes from like the, the passion that everybody has for motorcycles and, and you build cool stuff when, when everyone's passionate about it. You know, when you, when you work in a corporate building and, and some guys just sitting there typing code all day for uh you know a bike so it can meet emissions and he's never even a bike he's never even sat on like it's not going to be this is not going to have the same character Let, let's talk a little bit about um adventure riding as a category you know ktm's putting on this this adventure rally i think you're going to be up there um as an ktm ambassador or ktm employee you know yep. kind of uh doing your thing um and and a bunch of people are going to come up there what do you think it is about the the adventure category right now that's got it running so hot? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's a combination of things. It, it, obviously, it's been the hottest category in you know in on road motorcycles for the last ten years, and it. Uh, I think you know, like you said, with the introduction of the of the mid class bikes, so that starting with the with the 790 and 890. And then now, you know, we have other manufacturers coming in with all kinds of cool stuff. And it, I think that guys that ride, you know, normal enduro riders and dirt bike guys are coming in and, and saying, Hey, I, you know, that looks like fun. I want to do that. You know, some of the, some of our normal KTM customers that ride 300s and and 500s and things like that are like, wow, I want to, I want to try an 890, you know, I want something that, 
I can ride 200 miles or 250 miles without stopping for fuel. And so we're seeing a lot more of the dirt bike guys buy adventures where prior to that, you know, your, your normal adventure guy was a guy who had never ridden on the, on the dirt before. And they bought a 1200 CC motorcycle to go learn to ride in the dirt. And it, it's flipped a hundred percent now, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. but that was 10 years ago. That was your adventure customer. Yeah, and now it's a, it's a different story. So at this rally, do you anticipate there will be a lot of younger? I mean, clearly the adventure motorcycle market is still, you know, the 40, 50 year old guys, but do you anticipate a lot of younger guys there? I mean, you know, it's hard to say because we've, we've taken a break now for a couple of years from the, from the adventure rally due to COVID and, and whatnot. But, um, I know, you know, when we did the ultimate race, uh, the, the qualifiers at our adventure rally in, what was it? Last one was, I guess, 2019. Um, you know, all of a sudden we saw these guys that, that were coming in and they want, they're wanting to race their adventure bikes and like really go at it. And so we had a whole bunch of like a younger group of guys coming in and it, it really kind of brought a new life to the rally. And, and so we're, we're hoping, you know, now after COVID, we're hoping that some of those guys are excited to come back and, and ride with us and, you know, enjoy it. But it's, you know, and then of course we have our, our loyal customers that have been coming since the beginning. And, you know, I mean, we, I think this is, this will be the 17th KTM adventure rally. Um, you know, we had two year break, but, uh, so it, it would have been, I guess, 19th, but 19th yeah. year. Wow. That's wild. So. Are, are you getting any time to go out or, or do, let me rephrase it. Do you enjoy going out and doing kind of multi-day adventure rides or do you ever do it or, can, can, yep. as an ex racer, can you kind of pull back and just like, I won't enjoy the scenery and look around a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I love it. I, you know, I've explored on motorcycles my whole life. And I mean, I, I've been riding, I had a 990 adventure back in like 2007. So I've been riding adventure bikes for, you know, 15 years or so. And, um, you know, I, I enjoy going camping on, on bikes when I get time and, you know, I, I don't have a ton of time anymore, but but, uh, you know, when I, whenever I get the opportunity or I can make a good excuse to go do it for work, then I, I definitely do it. Yeah. So you still enjoy riding motorcycles? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's funny. We ask that question a lot. And, you know, sometimes people get so wrapped up in, in what they're doing and working 80 hours a week, you know, on motorcycles. And, you know, it's it's hard for them to enjoy, you know, actually getting on them because when they get a break, they want to just, you know leave two wheels behind. Yeah. So I, I will say I don't normally go and ride motorcycles on the weekends because I spend so much time around motorcycles during the week. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll go ride my bicycle or, you know, go hang out with my kids or whatever on the weekends. But, um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time on a motorcycle for work and, and I mean, even though it is work, you still, you still enjoy it. And, you know, we get to go do these scouting trips for the adventure rallies and, you know, lay out all the routes and stuff like that. And, and I love seeing new ground and riding somewhere for the first time for me is the best, you know, it doesn't get better than, than going over something the very first time and when it's all new. What's your favorite, like if you had five days of just anywhere you could go in the States, 
where would you where would you go? Man, I mean that's a tough one. You know, the the whole Western United States is is amazing. You know, if you head towards Utah, Utah is incredible. There's so much so much riding in Utah and Idaho. I've I've just kind of started to discover Idaho. Um, you know, Colorado, super cool. Arizona, it's you know, it's really kind of endless. A lot yeah. of options. Definitely. This is going to be our 10th year for our uh, annual trip. And we always talk about doing something east, and then we always end up going west, no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. We're, nothing we're, like the big, wide open spaces. That's for sure. And, you know, just I think in 10 years of riding the west, and this is, you know, I say this as a, as a positive. It's, it's kind of a negative right now. But, um, you know, we've had like six days of rain in 10 years. Right. You just don't mm-hmm. get rain on when you're camping out there, which is great as an adventure rider. Not so great if you're trying to, you know, live the next couple decades out out west. But, um, you know, just take when you only have two weeks to go ride a year and and do it. You don't want to be, spend six days in a washout, you know, right. in in the Appalachian Trail or something. Yeah. Yep. Um, back that way. OK. Um, <laughs> convince me that the KTM 390 Adventure is a bike worth trying out? I mean, I, I love the 390, you know, it's, it's really? a fun, yeah, it's a, it's a fun bike to ride. I really enjoy riding it. And if you have, if you have a couple buddies with them, you know, f- for the price it's, you, you can't have more fun. I mean, you know, it's, I don't know what it's, it's $6,400 or something yeah. now, you know, and, right. and, uh, you know, if you have two or three buddies that have them, you can absolutely have a ball on it and it, it, you can go basically anywhere that you want to go. And it's not super intimidating, um, that, you know, it's maybe not the bike that you're going to go ride with your friends on 1290s or GSs or something like that. Right. But if in the right sit in the right setting, it's, it's a ball. Well, I watched that, I don't know if it's a promotional video that you guys put out or, you know, video of you riding that thing. Like yeah, grease or something like that. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know. I kind of shook my head, Quinn. I was like, I think he can make anything look good, like riding. Like you know, I think your skill level and whoever you're riding with. I mean, I mean, I think you can take some KLRs out there and make them look like you know, like <laughs> I mean, race bikes. KLRs are are a blast too. You know, it's it's, it's not are. you don't you don't need some big hundred and sixty horsepower thing to to go have fun. I know. I always end up apologizing to the KLR riders out there. I mean, we rode them a lot and I love that bike. I do love yeah. that bike, but I, I always kind of compare it as the, you know, cause it was the bike I started on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I always harken back to maybe my inexperience on a bike rather than, <laughs> than the, the limitations of the bike itself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that whole 390 video actually came from, uh, a trip that uh, myself and Jesse Ziegler from, from cycle news did a few years ago where we, we took three nineties and we went, um, we went on a three day camping trip up in the, in the Sequoia national forest. And um, you know, basically two of us on three nineties, like two, you know, full grown men riding these little bikes and we had all our camping gear on and we went and just set up tents and camped wherever. And, and I mean, we had a great time and it was like, you know, we probably did, I don't know, a thousand miles in three days or something. Is that right? And, uh, the guys in Austria actually saw our, our Instagram stuff from it, the, the marketing guys. And they were like, we need to make a video of that. We need to make a video of that. And so it evolved from our, our trip in, you know, 
California to you guys are going to go to Greece and make this video of uh, of you guys riding 390s in Greece. So that's awesome. I, yeah. Look, I know I know it's a job, right? I know it's a job, and I'm sure there are days that are some better than others, right? But when you get a call at work and they're like, "Hey, you need to come over to Greece and and ride, and we're going to film you riding," you yeah. Know? I mean, uh, maybe it's just such a foreign concept for me because nobody's ever filmed me riding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we filmed you. <laughs> yeah, no, you filmed yeah. me wrecking. You haven't filmed me riding. <laughs> you always film me after I wreck. Um, but it, it, I don't know. To me, that just seems like, it, it, you know, that is, that is like a dream job, right? I mean, you know, we talked to, yeah. when we talked to Simon Cudby, um, and I know, you know, he, you know, he films a lot of that stuff and I, I follow him now, uh, on a couple of his, of his social media outlets and he's just, you know, flying all over the world and, and shooting videos and riding motorcycles. Yeah. I'm like, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, he's, uh, it's super, I'm super envious. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, it's got both sides to it for sure. I mean, it, it, on the surface, it, it looks it looks amazing, and it is it is for sure to a certain degree. But then, you know, you you spend like some of those video shoots and stuff where you're in Greece and it's a it's a hundred degrees and you're wearing full like heavy adventure gear and you know you start at five thirty in the morning and you don't finish until ten o'clock at night and it's like you're sweating all day and you're right. out with the camera guys like it it's grueling and you, you know you go on those trips for like three or four weeks and. It's uh, it's a lot of work, definitely. Like you come back and you're just you're done. You're, you yeah. don't want to go back and do that again. Yeah. And then you forget about it like six months later, and then when they call, and then you're like, yeah, that sounds like fun. Let's go. So. <laughs> well, listen, if you ever get bored of that, you call old Matt McFadden. He'll he'll jump on a plane to Greece. <laughs> I can't I can't Maybe. I can't guarantee the video is gonna look quite the same, but I'll I'll give it my best. Um, Quinn Cody. Very much appreciate you taking the time this evening and coming on to talk to us on the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. Uh, super insightful, interesting. Uh, it, your uh, your accolades uh, speak, and your credentials, uh, you know, speak to your to your expertise. But it's always fun to get you on and, and hear the stories uh, behind the legend. So uh, appreciate you taking the time. Right on, thanks, guys. It was a good time. Yeah, thank you, man. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. For more information about this episode or to learn more about Adventure Motorcycle USA, please visit AdventureMotorcycleUSA.com.